Hi, I'm Pastor Kenneth Olusanya of the Vivify Ministries, and it is my joy that your heart is awakened to the finished works of Christ with such powerful simplicity. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Is there life after death? Is there life? Is there actually life after death? And we're going to find this out. You know, when I, when I watch a lot of movies and, and see, you know, what we see in sci-fi films, you see people trying to make an attempt to preserve life. People are going out of their way, bringing some technological innovation, bringing some mathematical formula, just something that can somehow maybe elongate life. I remember watching a series where something that happened to the earth, it was destroyed, all life ceased to exist. There was some radioactive uh, you know, infect, in, infection there. And so the people had to travel in a spaceship to go to some other planet or just orbit in space. And they had these cryogenic machines they would put people in just so that, you know, after 100 years, after 100 years, they come back out and start a new Earth. And you've seen some of those series before, right? Um, and that's their own way of saying, look, maybe we can actually achieve that. And I'm, as I'm speaking, people are actually attempting to see how they can preserve human life using cryogenic technology to preserve life. Some people <coughs> want to add a few years to their lifespan. Um, some people are also, you've seen the movies as well, where you try to transfer a person's consciousness to either another body or into a digitalized form so you can live forever in the cyberspace. So help us God. <laughs> people have wahala, but I mean, I understand the desperation. When you don't know the truth, and if it's possible, you'll go about your own way to establish your own concept of eternal life. Um, but I know better. I know that all those things won't work. They can try some technology, maybe help us live healthier, live better, but not really to immortalize humanity in that sense. You know? And so a lot of people have tried, but they have failed. They have failed. And many of us, we have a desire to live long, don't we? Um, and, and not just in the sense of, oh, I'm leaving my legacy behind, which is good. You know, people say, oh, he lives on in our heart. And yes, they mean that in terms of your legacy, what you left behind. But the question remains, like, beyond just living on in people's hearts, can you actually live on after life? Can you live after death? That's the question of the day. Praise the name of Jesus. Is there some way to live forever? And I don't know about you, maybe you've lost someone in your life before, a grandparent, an uncle, a friend. Like, what comes to your mind when you think about that? Do you just think that all, after all is said and done, everything just ceases to exist? Everything just stopped, it just meant nothing, they are nowhere, they stopped to exist. Is, is that what you think? Is that really what we think? You know, there's this um, astrophysicist by name of Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he has a very interesting theology about, or theory, I beg your pardon, about life. And it says, the way things happened after the Big Bang happened from the singularity and all life matter expanded from there, some stardust trickled down into the earth. And from there, with all the evolutionary, evolutionary processes, somehow man came to be. We came from stardust. And I'm like, oh, nice. And he said, we go back to stardust. Wow, I'm stardust. I, 
I, I'm a star, but I'm not dust. <laughs> Take your keep. I'll keep that part. You know, and and I hear. I hope he's changed his his mind about it, anyways, because it doesn't hold up scientifically. It's all theory. Um, but is that what happens? Your grandparents, these stardust now, is is his life just gone, and you will never ever see him again? Is that what it is? I personally don't believe so, and I want to show you that. Um, some people do think that they were made from dust, we go back to dust, and that's it. Some people think that this is all there is to life. You can build your mansions, build your houses, buy a yacht, live your most luxurious life, but that's it. When life ends, it ends, it's all gone, nothing. Like, is that true? And some people believe that, and some people say this, and, and I can't blame them. A lot of people have abused the concept of an afterlife. Um, I mean, we've been in phases of our lives where we've heard stories of people who said they traveled to the great beyond, they died, they were taken up to heaven or went down to, earth, to, to hell, and they saw things, they shared those things, and said there's an afterlife. And, and some people criticize that and, and criticize the fact that, look, many of us are just looking for some emotional cushion out of this. Many of us are just looking for some way to settle our hearts of what is, is inevitable. They say that, look, there's really no hope. You guys are just Christians, so you're trying to deceive people, make people feel good about themselves, but there is nothing after this life. It's hopeless, it's all gone, there's nothing. People say that, people say that. But I believe, look, when you have a healthy approach to what your life is and the meaning of your life, these questions will become more important to you. And any glimmer of hope, you would at least give a listening ear to know what it's about. And that's where I want to start off. I want to talk about the worth of a human life, the worth of your life. What are you worth? What value do you have? I was reading an article on NPR, and they say that the economists have said, the economists have said that the average human life, the average human life is worth, guess how much? Can you guess? Can you guess how much in dollars? The average human life is worth $10 million. Wow. Wow. Now, that's a lot of money, right? That is a lot of money. If you have $10 million dollars, I think you're fine, you're set, you're good. You and your family, you're fine. There are people who, who have never lived up to having that amount enter their bank account or flow out of their bank account. Um, so it's a, it's a high amount of money. But when you think about it, that, that, that's, I feel that's an insult. <laughs> how many of you, honestly speaking, maybe in desperation, how many of you, if you're to sell your body parts, they ask you, we want your eye? or maybe your two eyes, for $3 million. How many of you will sell? I mean, I would assume the brain is the most expensive, so your eyes are probably not even up to $3 million. They're probably less if your, your entirety is $10 million. Sell your eyes for $3 million. You will sell. Now, if you say kidney, maybe that's a different conversation. You know, you say, I have to, let me just. But your lungs, your heart, your stomach, 
your private, your brain. You, you cannot even fathom selling any part of your body because there's something intrinsically beaming inside of you that, look, I'm worth more than any price tag. There's something about that. And, and many of you think about it. Imagine you, you had a child. You know, you've been waiting on the Lord. You've been waiting for a while. You finally had a child. And, you know, but things are hard. And then you're just talking to your wife. You're like, ha, honey, we have to do something. We cannot, we cannot take care of this child. And look at his spots belly at his age. He's eating all the money. Look at him. Look at us. Let's sell him. We're selling for, maybe they said it's $10 million, right? They're selling for $10 million. No matter what, a reasonable parent will not do that to their child. You will sell your child for $10 million. You won't. There's something in us that knows, look, yes, some people can put a price on things that we are or that we, that we, we have, but we know that we're worth more. We're worth more than that. You know, and you can think of the Elon Musk and the Bill Gates and say, of course, those ones are worth more than 10 million. Yeah, but like when you strip all of that away and you look at the human being, they say $10 million. I find it very interesting. But when we have to ask the real question to the value or the worth of a thing, where do we go to? Who do we ask? We, we did something last time um, when we talked about, uh, two weeks ago, when we talked about the existence for God. We talked about the teleological argument. And the teleological argument says that if you see intelligent design or creation that makes sense, there has to be an intelligent designer. There has to be someone who put it in, in, into place. And so by extrapolating that, you see that the worth of a product is ascribed by who? The producer. Take two, ex two mobile companies, for example, mobile phone companies. Uh, the first company starts with an S. The second company starts with an A. I think, I think you know where I'm going with this. The first company, S, says, you know what? We have a product with this great functionality, has great features, can do almost anything. But we want to put the price at $300. Like, oh, okay, not bad, not bad. And then the second company, company A, says, hmm, we have similar features functionalities, but our product can do much better. We, we kind of bought it around the same, you know, we made it with the same, uh, at the same cost of materials, but ours has a higher value. At least we, we need to give the impression. We'll sell this phone for $1,500. That is five times more than this one. But you cannot complain because at the end of the day, the person who ascribes the value is who? Is the producer. He knows what he's doing. This product is valuable, and this is the price that I put to it. If you were a product, what value would your producer put on you? We're going to look through some scriptures to solidify that. I'll, I'll read from Psalm 8, from verse 4 to 8. I want you to read with me. I'll read a couple of scriptures. This is powerful stuff. Psalm 8, from verse 4 to 8. If we believe that God is producer, he created all that we see, all that we experience and he created us, then he is the one that determines what our value is. Verse 4, the psalmist asks a very important question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? 
For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Of course, we see the prophetic angle when you read the book of Hebrews. You see that there's another side to this. But he's talking from his own human experience. That Yes, we are not as glorious as, as an angel would look like, but you've crowned us with glory and honor. You have made man to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Like, no, 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 no. How? <laughs> no, 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 no. How can man be so valuable? You created all these wonderful things, but you look at a broken, messed up creation like us, and you say, I want all things to have dominion, for you to have dominion over them. That when you, you, I say, fruit, be fruitful and multiply. I also want you to, to have dominion. But what is man that you care so much about him? David was confused. Who are we? But there's something the creator saw in us. Value. Worth making us leaders of all the things he created. Psalm 139 verse 14. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The word fearfully doesn't mean God was afraid that your nose would break if you should mistake me. No. Fearfully meant respectfully, with honor, with regard, with that sense of carefulness. You were created not in a rush, not in a hurry. You were created well, fearfully and wonderfully. And that's what David says. This is powerful. So marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Powerful. Genesis 1.27. You know this one all too well. Genesis 127 says so God created man in what in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them out of all creation there was one that God saw and God created God created in his image he looked at us he created a being that could relate, that could interact, that could fellowship, that could think, that had a conscience, that had a free will. He made us in his likeness, his image bearers, his imago Dei. People that would, that would interact with him and, and exercise the dominion that he has even on the earth. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Psalm 127 from verse 3. This is a scripture that on 20, 27th of May, we, we read <laughs> way too often, um, but it's very relevant. It says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. They are. They came from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It, 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 it's just to remember that, look, everything that we have in terms of humanity, a child's life, it comes from the Lord. There's value. It's given from the Lord. It's a, it's a reward to the fruit of the womb. Matthew 16, verse 26. Now it gets, it gets dicey. Matthew 16, from verse 26. Look at what it says. Look at what it says. You know, I, I'm just thinking about that text before we even go on in, in Psalm 8. Just thinking about it, how God created all things uh, for the sake of man. Do you realize that even the angels... The Bible, I, of course, they, are, they, are, they were created to minister to the Lord. Um, but the Bible says they are also ministering spirits to those who will be called heirs of salvation. They are ministering spirits. So they were even created. Angels were created to serve us. 
to bear messages to us, to strengthen when we are weak, to lead the path, to their sense, lest we dash our foot against the stone. Think about that. That God prepared everything man would need before man came on the scene. Crazy. What is man that you're mindful of him? I ask that question myself a lot. But now look at where we're getting to. Matthew 16, 26. For what will it, what it, for what will it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. In fact, the, the, the last part is where I want us to focus on. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Like what amount of money, of riches, of wealth would a man be able to give that would be equitable to his soul? The amount that you can use to replace and exchange for a soul. He said, what is that price? If you profit the whole world and you lose your soul, guess what? You've lost everything. You gain the whole world, but you lose your soul. You've lost everything. That is what it's saying. There's no amount of money that can afford a soul. <laughs> this is what our Lord Jesus is saying. Your life is, is important. It matters. It has value. Psalm 40, 49, verse 78. I have not read this in a long time, maybe in like five years ago. But just thinking about it, it's, it's so powerful. Psalm 49, from verse 78. It says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Look at that. No man can actually ransom another person's life. You don't have enough money. Kidnappers can tell you two million, but they're just trying to, to make ends meet. Your life is not two million. Or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is what? It's costly and can never suffice. The price of a life is what? Costly. In fact, the best way to put it is you are priceless. You are priceless. And now I hope that has more meaning than just, you know, the way people say cliche, you are priceless. You actually are priceless. And of course, from a prophetic revelatory standpoint, we realize that, of course, no amount of money can ransom a life. But there was a price that was paid. There was blood that someone gave. The same God who valued you so much was willing to pay his blood as a ransom the precious, blemishless, powerful blood of Jesus Christ. And that was enough to ransom you. Who determines the value of you? Who determines your value? How much are you worth? I'm going to read John 3.16. You know this all too well as well. John 3.16. John 3.16. This is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, so look, God, think about this, the almighty, the majestic, the greatest being in not just this world, but all the worlds, all the universe, the greatest being found a people that he said he loves. And he didn't stop in just saying he loves. He didn't just love with words. He did something. He gave. He gave his very life for these people so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look at that. Look at that. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. John 3.16. 
God loved you so much, he gave himself. He gave himself for you. That is brilliant. And, and when I think about it, look at it. Look at it. There are 8 billion of us, right? 8 billion and growing. Literally, and, and I hope this is, not, this is not blasphemy to say, but God evaluated 8 billion of us. Naturally, that doesn't compare to the worth of his own life. But then he was willing to say, look, they are just worthy of me laying down my life. He chose, he chose to see the worth in us. And he gave his life for a people that were broken. In fact, the next text, Romans 5 um, from verse 8 says it. But God shows his love for us in that while we are yet sinners, we're still sinners. He died. He died for us. Like this blows my mind. That he saw us. And, and the truth is we are not worthy. We are not worthy. But he found us worth worth it. That's, that's different. We didn't deserve his love. We did not deserve his grace. We didn't deserve his kindness. But he looked at us and said, look, even though, yes, rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, talk less of you, a sinner. I will, I will prove my love. And die. like, why us? Have you found someone who, maybe there's someone like that in your life, who just gives you gifts, calls you, checks on you, lavishes you with so much love, and you're like, Why? Like, why? And you start to feel undeserving. That's how I feel sometimes. That's how we should all feel. We should feel that, you know, it's truly from a place of gratitude that we didn't deserve any of this. But God proved that your life was worth saving, that your life was worth dying for, that you have value. Guys, your life is worth something. I know you might, you might think, when you think about the greats, those who are, we call legends or goats, you know, naturally, I think many of us will agree that their life is worth something. The president of a country, his life is worth something, right? Someone like, you know, the, the, the revolutionists and, and those who, who changed the narrative of their countries, Nelson Mandela and the likes, one life mattered, would you, wouldn't you say? Who put these people in a category, in a pedestal and say, yes, their life matters, but when you strip that all away, at our very core, every human being has a potential for greatness, has a potential for global impact. Every human being does. And so by reason of this, your life actually matters. The fact that God says it matters, the producer says it matters, is far more important. I'm saying this because if, if you realize your life is that important, it, you owe yourself, the, you know, you owe it to yourself to ask these questions. Like, why am I actually here and where am I going to after? You owe yourself that question. If your life has meaning, it's important, it's of value, then you should at least be scared if you don't know for sure what is going to happen to you after death. You should be. But don't be dismayed. I have answers for you. I have answers for you. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the arguments for the afterlife. That's what we're going to do. And, and many people have said, you know, that, I mean, there's one very popular argument, which is um, by far, I think, a lot of people talk about the most. Um, but I've graciously, <laughs> pre I'm presenting six good arguments for the existence of the afterlife for you. But before we go into that, the question remains, how do we know an afterlife exists if we haven't 
seen it. Like, how can you know a thing exists if you haven't seen it or experienced it? I'm not talking about wind. I'm not talking about air. Like, but you, you have not experienced it, but, um, but you, you want to know if it exists. There are two major ways of doing that. Number one, you look to people who have experienced it, right? You hear what they have to say. If you want to know what something looks like or what it feels like, you should meet someone who has experienced it, all right? But on this one, the challenge is we've not successfully heard of people who genuinely, and I'm using the word genuinely, died and then came back and said, ah, my brethren, ah, things are happening. <laughs> we've not had that happen, right? There are people who have had near-death experiences, and we're going to talk about that. Um, and so that almost seems like the closest we have. Or is it? I'll get to that. I'll get to that. The second other way to verify or know is if you experience it for yourself. That means if you die. But then why would you want to die to know what life after death looks like? <laughs> I think you'll be late, both literally and figuratively. You will be late and you'll be late, <laughs> literally. You'll be dead. So you can't, you can't use your life to prove the afterlife. Um, but you can know about an afterlife even before it happens. Or you, know, you can know it exists even before um, death. So let's get into the argument of, of, of the afterlife. Number one, near-death experience argument. The near-death experience argument, short, short for that is NDE. right? And look... If I have the math correct, the numbers correct, about 10% of everyone on the earth, 10% um, have had a near-death experience. And that's about 800 million people. That's a lot of people, by the way. And out of the, seven, of the 800 million people, 76 to 100% of these people came with the belief, they came away from that, that experience with a statement that an afterlife definitely exists. So some of them had experiences where, you know, they're maybe in a hospital room and their doctors operating on them or they're at the site of a car crash, a car accident, and they describe it in different ways. Many times the narratives are dependent upon what happened prior to that situation. But as much as it's diverse, there are common threads that we can trace in their narratives. And most of them will say there was this out-of-body experience. There was this experience where they, could, they were unconscious, but yet they were aware of the people around them. They could see people crying. They could see people. And then there was, there was this moment where they started to approach a light, a very bright light, or some tunnel, or they saw some figure calling to them. They, they describe this, and you've seen it in the movies. It's not unfounded. These are actual experiences that people have accounted for. You know, people have said it and they've talked about it. And in all the accounts of these people, many people believe that, look, because of this, there should be an afterlife. It only makes sense. It means that once my heart starts, stops beating, and medically speaking, that's what you call someone who's dead, dead, or maybe they're brain dead. Once your heart stops beating, you're dead. And so if you can still somehow have some consciousness after they've declared your heart beating, 
And maybe somehow they were able to resuscitate you back with some, you know, but that moment where it's near death, you, you are still aware, you're able to see these things, um, then, I mean, it just tells you that there's something there, right? There's something worth checking out. But of course, there are people who criticize this, right? People give different examples and, and you say, look, just because um, something, we don't know how something works, doesn't mean it is God or it is supernatural or it is mystical, right? So that's the first argument against this argument. People say, no, no, I don't want to believe that. Look, just because it's mysterious doesn't mean it's God, doesn't mean it's an afterlife. Um, it could be your brain producing some biochemicals, causing the illusions to come about. Maybe it's a defense mechanism or survival strategy of your brain. We don't know to bring you to a place of peace before you pass. And so people have attacked this argument. Some people also say that since it involves human consciousness, it deals with self-reporting, meaning there's no objective way for us to know if you're saying the truth or not. You're recounting your own story. You know, you could tell me that, look, you were riding on a unicorn, you were flying, and some of you have had dreams like that. <laughs> You've had dreams that did not make sense. You were licking ice cream. Next time, your teacher was flogging you. The next scene, you were reading your Bible, and you're like, wait, what? So I can't come and tell you you are lying, because it was your experience. You experienced it. So this kind of stories, uh, while that is the case, you can't objectively say you're right or wrong. But the truth is, when you have many people saying something similar, just like when someone has an eyewitness account and say, oh, I saw Jesus who was wearing white in front, you know, when he was speaking to us. And someone says, oh, I saw Jesus in Bethlehem at the same time, and he was wearing blue at the back. doesn't mean they were lying. It depends on their perspective and what they experienced in that moment. So it's like an eyewitness account where people are saying, this is what I saw, this is what I saw. But somehow there's some commonality to it. You know, and the third thing people say is, look, it's a, it's a personal um, and unique thing to the experience. The experiencer. You can't say... You can't start to create broad categories of, of near-death experience for something that's so personal and unique to people. Um, but at the end of the day, when people, when, when about 800 million people are saying similar things about something, it's something worth considering, don't you think? It's something, at least opening your mind to the possibility that maybe these people who have had the experience or a near experience, a pseudo experience of death, maybe they have something to say about it and something worth, worth uh checking out. So that's the first argument. The second argument is the metaphysical argument. The metaphysical argument. Uh, for those of you that don't know what this word means, it's not what Facebook, the Facebook company is building. No, it's not that meta. It is, and it's not number three. It's not three, that there are three parts to the physical. Don't, don't do that. No, don't do that to yourself. Meta it's not meta, it's metaphysical. Amen. <laughs> um, it just simply means beyond the physical. Beyond the physical plane, beyond the physical realm. And when you think about it, there are certain things that we see, that we have, that are in the physical realm, right? You can hold this, you can touch this, you can feel this. There are things you can touch. But there are things beyond it that you cannot see but you experience. And again, I'm not talking about wind or air or oxygen. I mean, actual things that you cannot touch, even if you tried, but you experience. Can you think of some? You have conscience. There is a conscience within you that regulates your actions, that tells you things, that tells you, no, no, this is not right, this is not wrong. But you've never said, ah, conscience, how fun, bro. <laughs> you never, you've never shaken conscience, hugged conscience, thanked conscience, but conscience has saved you. <laughs> Amen. There's another one. There's love. 
it's, it's almost intangible yet tangible. You, you've never touched love, felt love, but you see the effect of it. You see it drive your actions. It makes you do things you never thought you would do. It has carried you where you never planned. Eh? It also hurts. It's, I mean, all sorts, of, and that's not love. Love is not the one that hurts. But you, you understand what I'm saying. It, it's intangible, yet you feel it. I'm talking about hope. I'm talking about faith. These are forces that are beyond the physical plane, but they exist and they control the way we live as a society. There's a soulish realm. There's a spiritual realm. In fact, I heard of someone, I, I, and this is a, it's kind of a tragic inst- incident. There's an atheist. He didn't believe in God. Um, and he narrated his, I mean, there was a documentary about him. I may not mention his name because I don't want it to trigger anyone, but um, he, this is his story, very interesting stuff. And, and this was someone who for, was just against anything supernatural and all of that. Um, he watched a cartoon. I'll also not mention the name of the cartoon. He mentioned the cartoon that he watched when growing up, and he fell in love with one particular character in that cartoon. And then he littered his whole wall with that character, and he you know, narrated that he would have conversations with this character. They, were, they had a relationship. They would talk to each other. The character would appear to him. They would talk. Mm, you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Real life, talk, had conversations, and he was convinced that this character wanted him to kill some people at the local store where he worked. And so he was depressed, he was sad, but this was his only friend. He was away from the world. He was a YouTuber, by the way. And then he went, real life story, he went to the mall one day, uh, the store where he worked, killed all his employees, I think except one, and then shot himself. Dead. Was that a mental illness or was there more to it, guys? Well, people can argue, but there was some demonic influence there. There are people who are not even believers that have experiences with demons. So that tells you that, look, beyond what we can see with our kolokolo eyes, with our physical eyes, there exists a plane beyond the physical plane that influences these things. Do you understand? And there's a law of seeding, which means for something to be present, for something out of that plane, of of that thing, must have made it so. So if you have a physical plane, there must have been a spiritual plane that seeded that physical plane. And a lot of scientists and, and philosophers agree with that statement that something outside of a thing should have made it so. Do you understand? So there are things beyond the physical realm in the spiritual plane, the soulish plane that exists and control the physical. So that tells you that if I have a soul, if I have a mind, you know, and, and I have emotions that I can't handle, I can't touch, it's possible that these things are just transcendent, that even if this physical body goes, there's some transcendent parts of me that stay and linger. So that's an argument that tells you, look, beyond what you just see, there's a plane that exists in the afterlife, uh, or a plane that exists where you can still continue to exist, possibly. So that's what this argument is. I have not personally seen this argument. I just felt like it makes sense. And I put some pieces together. So I hope it makes sense to you. But that's what it means. There's number three, the purpose of existence argument. If, if, if it looks like I, I, I made it up, then you're right. <laughs> the purpose of existence argument. But trust me, these arguments have good basis. And a lot of people agree with it. Um, the purpose of existence argument. Like, why would all things exist if there was no purpose to it? 
If all we're supposed to do is just eat, be merry, and die, and that's the end, then what's the point of life? Why do I need to get a job? Why do I need to be accountable to my actions? Why do I have to hustle? Like, why? Why does... Think about it. Why does a man like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who said we came from stardust, why is he taking the time to write books that will sell millions telling me that I, my life has no meaning and I come from stardust if his life has no meaning? Why? It, it's ironic. There's a purpose of existence. There's a reason why things have order. Things are created the way they are. And if you tell me that it all ends with this life and there's nothing beyond it, then I'll ask you questions. There's a purpose to things. There's a purpose to life. There's a purpose to our living. And it must count for something. It has to. It has to count for something even beyond this plane of existence. That is the argument, that human beings must be transcendent for them to have a purpose on the earth. We have to be transcendent. If it's, if it's beyond just living behind the legacy, but there has to be some sense of continuity if there was already existent purpose here. So that's the argument, purpose of existence. Number four, which is linked to the previous one, eternal justice argument. Eternal justice argument. Have you ever wondered about people who have been terrible, who have done bad things, but when you read their life story, they ended up living up to a ripe old age and passed on in a mansion with all this wealth that they had. Where is the justice there? There's something deep within you that calls for a sense of justice. How will someone so evil, so terrible, just pass on without paying the consequences? There's something within you that knows that, look, there has to be a reason why I am morally accountable, why I'm expected to do the right things per time, and that, look, there should be a reward for good, and there should be punishment for bad. What happens to a man like Adolf Hitler? What happens to a man like that? that killed over 6 million Jews, Arabs, black people, homosexuals, and just because of his preference, he just hated these people, wasted their lives, and then also killed himself. What, what kind of justice does a man like him, like, like a Joseph Stalin, or, or, or like a Ted Bundy who murdered innocent and, and, and raped innocent girls and murdered them, what, what, what would you say about the serial killers, all these people who have made a mess of society? What, what justice remains for them? And for those people who built their nations, who impacted lives, what happens to them? A, a, a Paul, the apostle, Apostle Paul, who, and the other apostles who gave their lives, spreading the gospel, and maybe except John, who died gruesome deaths. What happens to these people? Where is the reward? But one thing we can tell for sure is there will be a day of judgment where everyone will be judged fairly, the books will be opened, your actions will be reviewed, every word you spoke will be taken into account, and you will be rewarded and, and punished, duly punished or rewarded for the things that you've done. You'll be accountable to your actions. There is a coming a time where that would happen. The scriptures tell us that. It's inevitable. It, it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that appeals to that sense of justice that we all have. But the thing about it is the one who believed in Jesus for the atonement of their sins, for their sins to be forgiven, while they will be judged, and rightly so, they will be judged unto righteousness. They will be judged unto eternal life. For the one, however, who did not believe in the provision for, for forgiveness 
of sins, the provision of salvation. Such a person will be judged as well, but because the Bible tells us all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, guess what? You are a sinner. You might have been morally upright, but the, the sin you've experienced, you know, you've, you've lied, you've stolen, you've done these things, and even just by nature, you came from a sinful ancestry from the time of Adam. So because you did not put faith in the provision of salvation, guess what? You'll be also judged, but judged unto condemnation, sadly. And I, I wouldn't want that for you. I don't. But you know that there is a sense of eternal justice within you that, look, beyond this life, the things I do now, there has to be something after where there's, there's some award ceremony. Some, think of life like an exam. There has to be some recognition, some award, some gift. There has to be. We see the patterns in this life, and so I believe that pattern exists even in eternity. So that's the eternal justice argument. Now, there is another argument, and this one is very interesting. It's called the nothing-to-lose argument. The nothing-to-lose argument. I find it so interesting. And this is what it means. Bro, just try, just try to believe. They play, you think... <laughs> They play. You think we, we don't have insurance plan? <clears throat> Which insurance plan? Guys, see, think about it. If at all, eh, can it pay? This thing is real. But you have believed in it. What happens? You enter. But can it pay? It does not exist. Perhaps it does not exist. What happens? I mean, you lose nothing. At the end of the day, <laughs> everybody just goes and dies and ceases to exist forever. So just believe. This is an insurance plan. But the problem with that is that is not what faith looks like. Faith is not a gamble. Faith is not a bet. That's not what faith is. Faith is full assurance. Faith is saying, look, I'm going to take my parachute. I will jump out of this plane. And I know that the only way I will survive is by this parachute. That is faith. Faith is putting all your eggs in one basket. Faith is a full investment. It's not a gamble. It's not a bet. It's not a probability. And so this argument really doesn't hold weight. There are people who try to say, look, just believe in it. Believe there's an afterlife because you have nothing to lose. It's a dangerous place to be. This is the only argument I'll give to you that I'll tell you, look, be, be wary of this argument. It doesn't hold weight. It's not something to do. But speaking about faith, you know, you need to remember this. At the end of the day, here's the truth. Here's the hard reality. As much as you want to know all you want to know about a thing, you really can't. There's no one who can categorically tell you that with, with certainty, I know everything about everything. No one will say that. You can know much about a thing, but you can't know everything there is to know about that thing. And you will come to a point where you have to make the decision to bridge that gap by just trusting. That gap in your knowledge, you bridge it by faith. And that's what faith is. It's a bridge many times to gaps in knowledge. Faith is a bridge to gaps in knowledge. You may know all you need to know about God, that God exists. He created this world. It's beautiful. He is good. He is merciful. He gave his life. You know those details. But when you want to start to backtrack and say, where did God come from? Did God just exist? You know, you start to go deep into the Trinity and all these complex topics. There's some gaps you start to identify. I don't know everything there is to know. But you get to a point where you must say, look, I know just enough. 
I know enough, and that's it. I will put my trust in. I know enough to then bridge the gap of knowledge by my faith. And, and look, everyone, whatever belief system you, you are, and that's what a belief system is, it's about faith. Whatever worldview you have, everyone has to come to a point where they know they don't know everything about what they do, and they have to put it. Even scientists will tell you they don't have the answers. You're still seeking the answers, but they don't have the answers. So what happens when you don't have the answers to some questions where there are gaps in knowledge? There's a place where you have to just say, look, even though I don't know the answers, this is where I belong. This is what I believe in. Do you understand what I've said? All right, so at the end of the day, um, that's how it is. Even in this, in this topic, um, no one has died before and come back to life. Well, except one person, which I will tell you about very soon. Uh, but none of us personally have had that experience where we died and came back to life. So we don't have that knowledge, but we can, with the evidence, the arguments we have, we can get to a place where we say, you know what, there is more to this life. And it only makes sense to believe in an afterlife. And I'm bringing you to one of the strongest arguments I've found for the afterlife. And it's this. It's the resurrection argument. The resurrection argument. And I'm talking about one person. There's one person in history, historical history, religious history, this figure who claimed that he will die. And after three days, he will, his, this temple will be rebuilt. He will come back to life. One person. People had said it before that they would do the same and they remained dead. Their graves still exist. Their bodies decayed. But there was one man who claimed that he would die and come back to life. And he did just that. He did just that. How do we know? And this, this comes back to those truths. You know, to know if something really exists, if there's an afterlife. It's either you experience it for yourself, but of course, in this case, if you experience it for yourself, you'll be late. But we can also ask for someone who has experienced, we can look to the example of someone who has experienced this thing, you know, to know for sure. And this is one man who claimed that he died, he was risen from the dead, and we can ask him. But how do we know he really was risen from the dead? I want to show you something. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, you're like, ah, <laughs> Pastor Ken, why are we going to the Bible to prove Jesus existed? Shouldn't we be looking at historical records? There are historical records to back up the claim. Uh, you, you see people like Pliny the Young. You see people like Josephus, the, histori the Jewish historian, that accounted that there was someone, a man who was called teacher, magician, sorcerer by some, a prophet by others, a leader by others, a revolutionary by, by many, who was killed and crucified on a Roman cross and was said to have lived even after, and his disciples continued to champion his message across the earth. That, that was the narrative for the, the historians in that time, that age. But more importantly, when you read 1 Corinthians 15, you see very strong evidence that Paul is bringing to the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm going to read from verse 1 to 6, then I'll show you something much later in a latter verse. Look at this. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. By which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. So it was prophesied that Christ will die for our sins. 
It was said that he'll be beaten, he'll be smitten of God. Isaiah prophesied it. The Messiah will die to save the people's sins, even though he himself was not sinful. And in verse 4, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You see the example, the prophecy of Jonah after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, testifying of what will happen in the, in the, in the place of death where Christ will be before he resurrect and you see david say the same thing look you will not leave my holy one to to decay and rot you know in hades you will not and so this prophecy is talked that look the messiah will die but he will also rise up again he'll be buried with the rich but he will rise up again after three days prophesied according to scriptures then paul now makes a harder case for people to deny he goes to verse 5 and that he was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. People saw him. Not just that. He appeared to these twelve people hiding for their lives in, in a hidden locked room. Twice appeared to them. And this second time with Thomas in the room. And tells him, touch me. Feel the holes in my hands. And this guy sees this has to be the Christ. And worships him. Believes in him. He appeared to these guys. He did. So they saw him. Mary Magdalene and some of the other women, they saw him. It wasn't a dream. It was no hallucination. Verse 6 says, look, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. At the same time. So he had appeared to, to Peter, Cephas, the 12, even the guys on the road to Emmaus, he ate with them. You know, he stayed in their place. There are some people he broke bread with, ate fish with. They could feel him. They could handle him. Remember, he spent about 40 days before he finally ascended after his resurrection. What was he doing for those 40 days? He was with his disciples. He was teaching them. He was with them. He was communing with them. Beautiful stuff. Preparing them for what was to come. Amazing. But at once, there was a time 500 people saw him. And what does it say about these 500 people? And just FYI. Clinical psychologists have said there is no possible way that 500 people can have the same exact hallucination at the same time. It's either they saw that person or they did not. But if 500 people say they saw a person at the same time, then that person was there. And, and make no mistake, that person was there. And it says, of whom, this is where it is, of whom the greater part remain unto this present day, but some are falling asleep. Two things I would mention about this. I love the fact that he uses the phrase falling asleep. This is a man who is talking about resurrection, understands the possibility of a life hereafter. And he says, look, these people are falling asleep, telling you, look, death is not the end. It's not the finality. Death is not a tragedy for the believers. It's not the concluding chapter. They will come back to life if they are asleep. That, I love that language. But the second thing he says, look, you can go around and talk to the greater part, maybe about 300 of them, 350 of them are still alive. Go and ask them. And he was saying this to people who were still alive in that time, that period, some few decades after Jesus had, had, had resurrected. So he's like, look, go ask these people. They will tell you that they saw him. They did. And when you think about it, look, there was such a compelling evidence that, you know, if truly Jesus resurrected, and, and this was when Peter and John were arrested, and Gamaliel spoke for them, he says, look, there are many people like Jesus Christ who um, came before and 
you know, Jesus, the son of, of, of Joseph from Nazareth, there are many of them that came before him who claimed to be the Messiah. Many of them had followers. But guess what? They are dead and they stay dead and their followers scattered and fizzled out. And he said something. He said, if this is truly the will of God, if this is truly the Messiah, right, not only will he resurrect, but his followers will continue. They will stay. They will multiply and they will be dogged about what they are proclaiming about this man. And that is exactly what happened. Christianity blew up and grew to what we have today. From these 11 men that witnessed Christ. And more than just them, the 500 who saw him. Look, make no mistake, guys. Jesus' resurrection, it's, it's, it's legit. How can you tell me that a, a, a tomb that had a, a, you know, a Roman punishment, capital punishment for losing a prisoner, would have the, the, the Roman soldiers sleep on duty and 11 scrawny disciples move that massive sepulcher, that stone, carry his body, sneak away, and no one knows. Look, there had to be something supernatural that he did come back to life. They did see the angels. They trembled and ran away, and Jesus walked out of that grave. He did. Alive, defeating death, never to die again. Glory to God. Guys, this is compelling evidence. If it's not, I don't know what, it, what is. But look at verse 19. He starts to make a case. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen and you're still in your sins. But look at verse 19. He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if all that we have is to enjoy Christ here in this life, enjoy life, love, hope, peace, in this life alone, he says we are all men most miserable. If everything we've been telling you and giving our lives for is just that you enjoy your life, have your best life now, then we have most men most miserable. This is temporary, he's saying. There is a, there's a hope that transcends this life, a living hope with an inheritance that faded not away, that is waiting for you in heaven. This is what he's saying. Glory to God. There is a life hereafter. There, there is the possibility, you know, and then verse 20 says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and became the first fruit of them that sleep. This was always the plan. This was always the plan. We've never had a case. We've had cases of people who were brought back to life, maybe by a miracle, by Elijah, for example, when Jesus raised people from the dead. But these people grew old after they came back from the dead, and they still died again. He was presenting an invitation through his resurrection of a life that will conquer death, never to die again. That I will die, but I will rise and I will never taste of death because death has been defeated. And it was an invitation, being the first fruits, the prototype, being the example, saying, look, if you believe in me and what I can offer, I, ha I am life. Come unto me, drink from me. If you believe in me, trust in me, you can have eternal life too. That is the point of this. It's an invitation that you can be assured that if the spirit that was in Christ, which now dwells in you, is also in you, it will bring back to life your mortal body. Glory to God. God wants you assured that, look, when you close your eyes in sleep or in death, you will wake them up to a life eternal. That is his desire. And like I said now, I hinted, look, not everyone will die. <laughs> not everyone will die. I know I started by saying that's something that is common to all of us, death. But not all of us will die. When the Lord returns again to judge the world, 
there will be some of them, those, the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, that those who are asleep in him, who believed in him, the saints of old, they will rise again with new bodies. They will rise again with spiritual bodies that can live in the spiritual plane. Rise with new bodies, immortal bodies. Meet him in the sky. And the Bible says those of us who are alive in that day, in that, in that moment, will be caught up with him. And will also partake in that glory. Hallelujah. He will judge the world rightly. Jesus the Son will judge the world. And those who put faith in him will receive the promise of eternal life. Guys, it's real. Heaven exists. Hell exists. You can see, look, the person who gives eternal life told us about this. Matthew 25, 34 to to 46. You can read it. You see that there are those who were the goats who he said were, you know, were going to be passed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But there are also those who do his will, who will be preserved and inherit the kingdom that he had prepared for us from the foundation of the world. Heaven and hell exist. And it's not a a scare tactic. I wouldn't do that to scare you. But it's true. And I don't want you, if your life really matters, when you ask yourself this question, is that an afterlife? I hope you truly look to the evidence I hope that you really look at the arguments we've covered. I really hope that you let your heart be open to the possibility that you can actually have the best life beyond this life, reigning with God for all eternity. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but truly have everlasting life. I am super confident that this has been a blessing to you. Keep praying with it and let these words drive you to action to live in the fullness of the will of God for your life. Stick around for more. God bless you. I love you.